0: Welcome to this edition of The Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. When I started this series, my plan was to arrive at Exodus chapter 12 and the story of the Passover to coincide with Easter. Uh, I'm I'm afraid it's one of those situations of the best laid plans of mice and men and it's completely my fault. You can't spend one week entirely on the word and and then expect to meet your goals. But we have made our way through to chapter 3 where Moses has been commissioned by the angel of the Lord at the burning bush. After all, Moses' excuses and Uh, We see God's patient and gracious answer to those excuses and his provision of his presence for Moses' inadequacies and supernatural signs that he gives to Moses. And then after that, he says, right, go. Moses somewhat reluctantly goes. And I need to skip quite a bit of text here so that we can catch up and actually get to Exodus chapter 12 by next week. But I want to pick up a couple of things that actually happen on his journey back to Egypt and when he arrives in Egypt that for me raises some significant questions and the first happens as Moses is making his way back to Egypt and we read about it in Exodus chapter 4 verses 24 and 26 it says it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him Moses and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he, God, let him, Moses, go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. I don't know what your response to that short passage is, but for mine it was like, What? What? Uh, The tendency is to rush off and consult various translations, which I did. This has to be wrong. How could God try and kill Moses? Well, they all say in one way or another, God tried to kill Moses. So you go into the original language to check it out, and it says God tried to kill Moses. What on earth is happening here? Moses has just been commissioned, and now it seems that God is seeking to kill the very person that he's chosen surely the phrase god sought to kill moses can't mean that god tried to do something but but failed to pull it off he could have killed moses on the spot nothing could have stopped him striking moses dead if he had a mind to god doesn't make a direct hit on moses he leaves time and room for a mediator in this case it's zipporah and that mediator can act before judgment falls God interposes a space between the onset of the threat and its potential outcome, and it's a space into which Zipporah steps with an act of embodied intercession, if you like, that diffuses the threat. It seems that God expected this human response and made room for it. And I suspect that he does that wherever and whenever judgment is impending. Too often, I fear, he's disappointed. Judgment is about to fall. He looks for somebody to step into that space, into that gap, but there's no one there. And Isaiah 59:16 says, He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. In Ezekiel 22, verse 30, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me, that I should not destroy the land, but I found none. Anyway, that is a message for another time, but in this case, there was someone to step into that gap. It was Zipporah, Moses' wife. This incident seems so much at odds with the rest of the story that the narrator could have, you would think, easily left it out, but they don't. There is so much about this incident that we simply don't know. What seems clear is that we're being told something is seriously wrong and something needs to be put right. Apparently, there is a matter between God and Moses that has not been resolved. What we can deduce is that there is something Moses has done or has not done that has aroused God's anger and has caused him to afflict Moses with some condition that is potentially fatal. It could have been some kind of illness. We're not told that for sure. We do know that Moses was too incapacitated to do anything about it himself, and he's saved again by a woman. This actually is potentially the sixth time that a woman has stepped in and saved Moses' life. If we think of the two midwives, Shipra and Puah, there was Jochebed, there was Miriam, and there was the Egyptian princess, and now there is Zipporah. What we know is that circumcision of the son removed the threat. If you go back in Genesis 17, God commanded that Abraham and his descendants should be circumcised as a sign of the covenant between God and his people. Moses, it appears, has failed to do so and it was an act of disobedience and God would not allow a disobedient Moses to be the instrument of his redemptive will. If Moses was going to bring the people into a right relationship with God, then he must be in a right relationship with God himself. And I think we can see and grasp in this incident that the Lord treats obedience with a seriousness that is in marked contrast to our self-excusing ways that are summed up so often in that used phrase, it's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission, so go for it, whatever it happens to be. I'd like to suggest to you that God is forgiving, but I suggest that he won't be played for a sucker and that we shouldn't trifle with him. Obedience is really important. Okay, so let's move on. Moses and his family survive this incident, and uh, on the way back, they miraculously meet Aaron, who has, as far as timing goes, quite supernaturally been drawn to meet with Moses. And together, the two turn around, go back to Egypt, uh, and meet with the Hebrew elders. They tell uh, Moses tells them what has happened, and they receive a surprisingly warm and affirmative. Affirmative welcome from the elders. And that that warm welcome seems to embolden Moses and Aaron to arrange their first audience with Pharaoh. And chapter uh, chapter 5, verse 1, starts off with what appears to be an impressively courageous act and statement. Moses and Aaron went in, told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. If you study the text carefully, you'll notice that what Moses and Aaron do and say is not exactly what God told them to do and say. Compare 5.1 with chapter 3, verse 18, where God is now instructing Moses, and he says, You shall come, and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So God says to Moses and Aaron, take the elders with you as you go to Pharaoh. They don't. They go alone. God says, tell Pharaoh that the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Moses and Aaron don't mention the fact that God has met with them, and they call the Hebrews Israelites, which is a term that Pharaoh would never have heard before. God says, tell Pharaoh, please let us go. The verb form is polite. It's cohortative form, followed by the word uh, please. What they say to Pharaoh is, let my people go. It's a simple imperative, a command, not a request, with no softening word, please. God says to ask Pharaoh to let them go on a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses and Aaron don't mention the three days at all. They just demand national liberation of an unspecified duration. Scholar Al- Alex Moitie claims this was the wrong delegation, using the wrong approach and the wrong terminology and making a wrong request. The Lord commanded a corporate approach, couched in understandable language, making a moderate, limited request in courteous terms. Moses adopts an authoritarian approach, alienating Pharaoh with incomprehensive talk and laying down an absolute demand. Now, I know we can't know whether it would have made any difference if they had done exactly what God commanded. In fact, we know that God said Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. God had predicted a battle of wills but a more courteous approach just might have deflected the blunt refusal and ruthless counterblow of even more relentless slavery that quickly followed. The brothers' imperious demands are met with an equally imperious refusal and Pharaoh's response amounts to a no, no way, never. Increase their workload. That'll stop them babbling on about a holiday in the wilderness. The dismal result of this first effort to liberate the people actually increases their plight. Naturally, the Israelites blame Moses for the worsening of their condition. And Exodus 5.21 in the message says, May God see what you've done and judge you. You've made a stink before Pharaoh and his servants. You've put a weapon in his hand that's going to kill us. There followed for Moses, a gut wrenching sense of deja vu. Once again, apparent failure, once again rejected by the very people that he's meant to help. This, by the way, uh, this increasing intensity after a request to be let go is, is not an unusual pattern. I've often noticed that when people make a commitment to seek freedom rather than things get better, they sometimes get worse. We're dealing with entrenched habits and powers that will simply not roll over and give up their territory without a fight. When I'm talking to people, I often liken like getting free to, to breaking out of a prison camp. When we are a prisoner of war, as so long as we obey the restrictions and the rules of the camp, you'll be largely left to your own somewhat limited devices. But if you make a bid for freedom, all hell breaks loose. The searchlights are on you, the dogs are after you, bullets are firing. Stay with your addictive patterns and at least you're in the world of the familiar. Try and break from them and sometimes all hell can come down on your head. In this moment of rejection and apparent failure, at least this time Moses doesn't flee to Midian. It says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? Why have you sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. So he questions God's goodness. Why have you brought this trouble? He questions God's purpose. Why did you send me? And he questions God's actions. You haven't delivered this people at all. At least Moses took his complaints to the right place. He took them to the Lord. Compare that with the Hebrew foremen who go and complain to Pharaoh about their increased workload and lash out at their leaders. I mean, seriously, why would you go to Pharaoh? He's the source of the problems, not the answer to them. So Moses goes back to the Lord, and in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, God very patiently reaffirms Moses' call. It's as if he says to Moses, "Okay, let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Who did I tell you that I am? What did I tell you that I would do? What follows there is a virtual repetition of the original call that Moses received in chapter 3. One verse in that speech has caused much debate in the halls of scholarship. Verse 3, it says, I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob as God Almighty. As to my name, Yahweh, I have not been known to them. The patriarchs knew me as El Shaddai, as God Almighty, but not as Yahweh. Now, that seems a direct contradiction to what Genesis actually descri- describes repeatedly. Yahweh is used 162 times in the book of Genesis, as early as chapter 4, verse 26, where it says people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Abraham knew God as Yahweh-Jireh, Jehovah-Jireh. W- what's happening here when he says they didn't know me as that by that name? Is this one of those so- so-called dreaded contradictions? Well, some scholars suggest that what God is saying is that although the patriarchs knew the name of Yahweh, they couldn't know it fully because it could only be revealed in the context of great acts of redemption and the covenant making that that didn't happen until the book of Exodus. G. Campbell Morgan commented that Yahweh is particularly the name that's associated with the grace of God revealed in and related to redemption. And redemption is the great theme of Exodus, not the, Gen- not the book of Genesis. And that explanation is implied in the New International Version translation, which says, By my name, the Lord Yahweh, I did not make my name fully known to them. What is argued then is not that the name per se was new, but that there was a new and more complete understanding that was being revealed. One scholar translates the verse as, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh, and I showed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the character of El Shaddai. But in the character expressed by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, that's a possibility. Another scholar suggests, and and this has some merit, uh, W.J. Martin says, this is a rhetorical question, uh, affirming implicitly implicitly that that is precisely the name by which the patriarchs knew God. And the translation should read, I am Yahweh. I allowed myself to appear to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as El Shaddai. My name is Yahweh. Did I not make myself known to them? And of course, the, the answer is, of course I did. Now, whichever it is, a more full disclosure or a rhetorical question, and both of them are possibilities, I don't think what we're dealing with here is a contradiction. After recommissioning Moses, uh, they, Moses and Aaron go back to confront Pharaoh. You know, from one point of view, this is almost uh, comical. A couple of octogenarian brothers taking on the powerful Egyptian empire. However, enter Yahweh and the odds are changed dram- dramatically. Now I'm skipping a large body of text here, but I, I want to talk about the plagues. Now I'm, I suggest that most of you will be very, very familiar with the 10 plagues that now rain down on the empire. But let, let's look at these. The first was that the, the Nile was turned to blood. Now, Pharaoh was absolutely unmoved by this sign because his, his magicians could do that trick too. Now, we, we aren't told the names of the ma- magicians, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, we are told their names, Janus and Jombros. And I can't help thinking that these magicians, Janus and Jombros, would have served Egypt much better if they had used their secret arts to turn the blood back to water. It seems, however, that they can imitate and replicate, but not reverse the actions of God. The the Egyptians worshipped the Nile as a god, and there were at least three gods associated with the Nile, Orsissus, Anu, and Hapai. So this sign from Yahweh is a direct challenge to these gods to discredit and humiliate them. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God says, On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment because I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. So the Nile is turned into blood. Secondly, there's a plague of frogs. Again, the magicians could only produce more frogs. You know, I'm really surprised that someone in Pharaoh's court didn't suggest more frogs. Great. Uh, Not quite what we need right now, chaps. The frogs were sacred to the Egyptians. They were a symbol of procreative power and were represented by Hekwet, a god who was frog-headed. So again, Yahweh shows his might and superiority over all the no-gods of Egypt. Thirdly, we have the plague of gnats. Scholars aren't quite sure what the original language pointed to, possibly mosquitoes or lice. At this point, the magicians are stumped and they opt out of the contest with the acknowledgement that now what is happening is above their pay grade and saying to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Following quickly, we have the plague of flies, the disease on the livestock, the boils on the people. Now, at this point, the magicians can't even come into Pharaoh's presence because they are plagued by boils on their own bodies. Number seven is the plague of hail, number eight is the plague of locusts, number nine is the darkness, which was a direct challenge to Egypt's Amon-Ra, the sun god. He, like all the other no gods of Egypt, was powerless before Yahweh. And then, of course, the tenth plague is the death of Egypt's firstborn. The first nine plagues have been described by scholars as the undoing of creation, ending with the plague of complete darkness. It's creation gone berserk, ending up in a return to the pre-creation darkness of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now, a question that arises for me is, how could Pharaoh not see the hand of God in these signs? How is it possible in the face of such displays of power to turn away and harden one's heart? And as I thought about this, I realized, you know what, people do that kind of thing all the time. I know people who have experienced miracles in their own body that God has wrought and yet they have turned away, explaining it away with natural explanations and have ultimately been dismissive of the miracle and have hardened their own hearts. We know that Jesus did amazing miracles in Capernaum and and Chorazin and yet the people did not repent. They they explained them away. Let Let me explore this with you for a moment. In some ways, if you have a mind to do so, it's possible to see at least the first eight plagues as the unmiraculous plagues. Now, the first plague affected the Nile. Nile turned to blood. Now, something has happened. Pharaoh doesn't quite know what. Who knows? Perhaps it could be explained naturally. Maybe the red soil of the upper Nile in Abyssinia has discoloured the water. Toward the end of June, the water in the Nile, having previously been green, becomes clear, then goes yellow, and then gradually a reddish colour like ochre. The effect is due to the presence of microscopic citrograms and uh, organisms called insufuria. They are single-celled organisms. Now, the problem for pharaoh here is that the water in had all the physical appearances, the look, the taste, the smell, and the texture of blood. And so it clearly wasn't just discolored by the water of Abyssinia or or, uh, small single-celled organisms. Water thus changed would neither kill the fish, nor stink, nor be utterly undrinkable. But Pharaoh was of a mind not to look too closely at that. And if he could explain away that, then the rest in domino form could be explained away. Whatever it was, impacted and compromises the whole ecosystem of the river. And the plagues that all flow from that first instance of the Nile being turned red consequently flow from the Nile being compromised. So the second plague is frogs leaving their habitat and invading the land. Zillions of them finding their way into every crevice, crack, pot, pan, and bed in Egypt. But it's what you would expect if the Nile had been compromised, nothing too supernatural in that. They have to get out of the water that's no longer suitable, and so they climb up onto the land. Then they die, millions upon millions of rotting frog carcasses. I'm really tempted to say, next minute. The next thing you know, there is a plague of insects and flies. Surely that would have been predictable, rotting flies... Uh, Rotting flesh, insects and flies follow as night follows day. And from Pharaoh's point of view, this is an ecological disaster, but miraculous, perhaps not. The next two plagues constitute an epidemic, disease that that destroys livestock and affects people with skin disease, leaving them with boils. Again, you could explain this away as being the natural, non-supernatural consequence of the earlier disasters. Insects and flies carry disease that affects livestock and human. Tragic, but explainable. Now the locust and hail that follows, if you have a materialistic mindset that closes the door to the supernatural, are just lousy timing of purely natural phenomenon. Shame that they happened in, in, in sequence after these things, but, they, but these things happen. And that invites the question, What will ever be miraculous enough to convince people if they have a mind and a heart that's close to God? And the answer is probably nothing. It seems to me that with every miracle, there is always the opportunity to explain it away if you have a predisposition to do so. So the healings were psychosomatic, the exorcism was psychiatric, the River Jordan was dammed at a point upstream by a landslide, and the timing coincidentally allowed Israel to cross, the miraculous provision was fluky timing, and the near-death experience was the final flaming of the brain's neural pathways or the medication. You think of the miracle of creation itself with its mathematical precision, its fine-tuning, perfectly suited for human life. Believers gaze with awe and wonders. Skeptics like Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodinow say, because there is a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing, why the universe exists, why we exist, and it is not necessary to invoke God. This to me is no less and perhaps even more remarkable than Pharaoh hardening his heart in the face of the plagues. People staring straight into the face of God's miraculous activity and seeing nothing that moves them and then speak, quite frankly, absurd nonsense about spontaneous creation and the universe giving birth to itself. You know, if I said to you, the man gave birth to himself, you'd dismiss me as a lunatic. But if famous scientists say the universe gave birth to itself, we all go, wow, how amazing is that? I'm sorry, but the emperor has no clothes, and nonsense remains nonsense even when it's spoken by brilliant scientists. Even more absurd is what famous astrophysicist Loris Krauss said, seeking to explain the creation of cosmos out of nothing in an entirely natural uh, way. He said, because something is physical, nothing must be physical, especially if you define it as the absence of something. Now, if you can work that out, you're better than me. I love what John Lennox said in response to that. He said, if I say I went down the road and met nobody, it doesn't mean I met somebody who's really nobody. It means I didn't meet anybody. If you don't want to confront a miracle, you can and will explain it away and you can harden your heart in the process. Pascal once said, God gives us signs with enough light for those who desire only to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. Now we know these plagues were not simply natural phenomenon, but they constituted God's supernatural judgment on Egypt and its autocratic leader. Uh, Sometimes people get a bit nervous when they read about God's judgment coming on people or a person. Uh, You know, they say something to the effect that they thought God was supposed to be good and that kind of judgment doesn't sound good to me. But can I suggest to you that in one sense the plagues were sent to save rather than destroy? Impending judgment is designed to cause people to repent and change their ways. God's way is not salvation or judgment, but salvation through judgment. And of course, that's a principle that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus at the cross. God is never wantingly simply desiring to destroy. I mean look at Exodus chapter 9 verse 18 it says so here's what's going to happen God says at this time tomorrow I'm sending a terrific hailstorm there's never been a storm like this in Egypt from the day of its founding until now so get your livestock under one roof everything exposed in the open field people and animals will all die when the hail comes down if God was seeking indiscriminately just to destroy why the warning a warning by the way that many Egyptians heeded Though the text doesn't explicitly state this, there are good reasons to suggest that there were some Egyptians that were also saved from the final plague, the death of the firstborn. Firstly, the means of deliverance was not nationality per se, but rather the presence of blood over the doorpost in each house that responded to the Lord's command. And if an Egyptian household had applied blood, then the death angel would have passed over their dwellings too. There were, as we saw in the plague of hail, Egyptians that were responding to the Lord's commands. And there's no reason to assume that they wouldn't have followed Moses' counsel on that occasion as well. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, we're told that when Israel left Egypt, that they were accompanied by a mixed multitude. And it's clear that whoever that group was, they weren't Israelites, and in all likelihood, they were obedient Egyptians. Salvation is always open to and available to anyone willing to come. Some avoided Egyptian judgments, the mixed multitude. Some avoided Canaanite judgment, Rahab and her household. You know, the cross has dealt with the issue of God's judgment on sin once and for all, for those who will come under the jurisdiction, under its blood, under the smeared shelter, under the propitiatory shield that is Jesus Christ. Next week, I want to, as it's Easter, look in more detail at the Passover and the incredible connection of this Old Testament event with the New Testament uh, event at Calvary. So i look forward to being with you then. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.